0: Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us. Welcome, welcome everyone. It is so good to be here on the 20th of October with you all. The spirit in UNESCO is around... If conflict begins in the minds of people, then surely the construction of peace also should start there. So I'm very grateful that we have a space for conversation, because one of the things that seems like we're not doing very well is uh, having a good conversation with each other on, on, on many different topics. We're treating this conversation the same. It's, it's Black History Month. It will be just good for us to have a look, a closer look at uh, Black History Month and see how people who are described as Black experience this. I'm Tawona, I'm an artist-in-residence with the UNESCO Chair for Refugee Integration Through Language and the Arts at the University of Glasgow. I am very happy today to introduce Bela Matambanazo, who is a Black African feminist activist and writer from Zimbabwe, who has been published in New Daughters of Africa, edited by Margaret Busby, writing Mystery and Mayhem, edited by Irene Staunton and the Southern African Feminist Review, edited by Patricia McFadden, and then African Sexualities, edited by Sylvia Tamale, and elsewhere she has had her work known. Welcome, Bella.
1: Hi, everybody. (laughs) I'm keeping the camera off because I'm on a really dodgy internet connection.
0: Thank you for joining
1: us. It's lovely to be with everyone tonight.
0: Thanks so much, Bella. And I know that you are doing a sterling job because we are having power issues and connectivity issues from a where you are. So it's, it's really lovely to, to have you with us. We also have Fado's in UK, who is a Zimbabwean studying environmental studies in Canada. She's an upcoming writer whose first publication in 2016 was very well received. It received second prize in the national competition in Zimbabwe. She has since published a number of short stories. So Ropafadzo, welcome.
2: Thank you. Hi, I'm Ropapadzo.
0: It's so good to have you, and um, you know, you are our voice of the youth. <laughs> 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 it's good to have you, Ropapadzo.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And we have Shannon Bobinger, who is a media presenter and systemic life and business coach. She should be uh, hosting this. After many, many years of presenting for channels such as Thai TV and Alex TV, as well as the Muay Thai diary and producing her own interview formats at Sipping Realities. The focus of her presenting is on social change with the aim of using inclusive, multi-perspective and diverse communication to promote interactive dialogue and exchange. Her work as a life coach follows a systemic approach focusing on personal development in an intercultural context. Welcome, Shannon.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Tawana. I'm also extremely Excited and curious about our upcoming conversation between all of us.
0: I'm looking forward to hearing from you and everyone. This conversation, we, we tried to spread the, the ideas by having Roba Fadzo and Shannon, who are in the diaspora, and then we've got Bella, who is in her home territory. I'm a diasporan too, but we want to look at this conversation from a different angles, and then you can only enrich us that way. The purpose of having this conversation is to perhaps come out with a better question. You know, we're not going to solve anything, but just the sharing of ideas and experiences. I think it's uh, very important for us to do that. I'm very aware that it's October here in the UK and it is Black History Month here, but (laughs) all our guests are not in Black History Month at the moment. It is uh, in February, I believe, in uh, Canada and Germany as well. Can I start there and just say, you know, what is uh, Black History Month like where you are? Maybe Shannon, if we come to you first, what is Black History Month like in Berlin?
3: Interestingly enough, I only started participating in a Black History Month when I moved to Berlin, which is eight years ago, Mm -hmm. which I find already quite telling, to be honest, because I grew up in Germany almost all of my life. And um, to grow up 25 plus years, never celebrating Black History Month or never being surrounded by enough Black community to even make it a thing, I guess is quite telling. So Mm -hmm. the first time I did experience it, I was completely almost in shock about all of the things I never knew. Mm. And I felt that I was somebody who was fairly okay informed and The place I went to school, um, the area is quite known to have a very challenging curriculum and wide curriculum. So that definitely confused me very much Then starting to learn about other things. Yeah, basically German colonialism, for example. This was Mm -hmm. something I've just learned when I started to exchange and to learn during the first Black History Month that I experienced in Berlin. It did change my world, world view, my own perspective and just understanding, oh, wow, there's this great, great aspect of my um, identity or life and even biography that I had no idea of. At the same time, I've made so many new friends, new acquaintances, and it was, it felt like a dive at the deep end into a community setting, which I enjoyed very much.
2: I'm based in Kelowna and during Black History Month, especially at my college, they invite all the people of color so we can celebrate together. I We learn cultures from different parts of Africa and that has been really interesting how people have like well received everything, how they're willing to learn about other people's history and how they're willing to help as well. And that was, I really enjoyed that. It also helped me like want to get to know more about where I'm from, like my past, my country's history, and I keep learning more and more every day.
1: Every month in Zimbabwe is Black History Month, right? Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily have this distinction of marking October specifically as Black History Month in the Zimbabwean context. But what is fascinating about today? especially this week, is that it's the week of the last full moon before the ancestors retreat into a season of rest in the month of what's called, in terms of the English calendar, the month of November. Mm. And this is when the ancestors take a break from doing all the work that they do to hold us in the earthly realm and in the spiritual realm, taking a break and resting and recharging for a resurgence of the beginning of our new year, which begins in the Zimbabwean calendar in December.
0: We'll come back and touch on that as well, because I know that in uh, in America where uh, this originated is in February, and sometimes people joke that it's the shortest month. <laughs> we were given the shortest month. <laughs> but I'm aware that here in the in the UK, you know, we, we speak of Black History Month as a time to celebrate the contribution of Black people to all aspects of life here, and to take stock of the challenges the UK and the rest of the world really, still facing tackling things like racism and also addressing issues around integration. So it feels like Black History Month is an opportunity for all of us. I wonder if I just come back to you, Bella, and. What would you say is the opportunity that Black History Month is offering us?
1: I was going to offer Taona, in response to that, a reflective piece that I wrote.
3: Oh, great. um,
1: And I hope it will contribute to the thinking for today. And it's called fatherlessness. One of the things I've been grappling with is how Black men in particular are being referred to as deadbeat dads. So I remember the very best of my father, fatherlessness. I got through it again the week in 1999 that my beloved father died. And in Burying him, I learned then as now, especially now, with the murder of this engulfing disease that grief must be survived. I would need to go on to continue to exist as fully, as joyfully, as if he were with me, yet without him by my side. I miss the hum of his music around the house the melody of his gentle yet sure feet. I miss how he eyeballed me with love and cooked fish he'd brought us from Malawi. I miss borrowing his best clothes to go partying in and never being asked to return them. Everyone knew him for another kind of brilliance. And I am so mesmerized, so proud that he shared so much of himself with you. Mukoma Paul, you called him. If you thought his achievements in public life were incredible, let me tell you this truth. None of what he did in the world compares in any way with the level of game he had as my father. And so that's the end of what I wrote. And I wrote it because one of the things that I think Black History Month tries to teach us is to be tender with each other even when we are not proud of each other.
2: In terms of opportunities, it's just nice to he- have people hear what you have to say yeah. and take it in well and, and also like want to know more. Like when you talk about a small segment about your history or about the way of living that people back home do and then someone comes back to you and is like, I'd like to learn more. That means a lot. There's certain aspects that are kind of like the same issues like spirituality, like in terms of history of spirituality, it's kind of the same in so many parts of the world. Not really the same, but kind of the same. And you get to learn that there are certain things about us, whether you're, you're Black or you're from a different race, there are certain things that we can all understand together. And with Black History Month, we get to help each other understand.
3: For me, the opportunity that I saw is to dive in deeper into yeah, my story and to the understand and learn about the connections um, to my personal biography and to just understand the the systems that I live in, that we live in, to just understand it better. Personally, I've just extended uh, Black History Month. It's also throughout the year for me. We have done as as Black people, we have achieved way too much for these 28 days to just celebrate us then. Um, and I see it as an opportunity just to empower each other more and to maybe then utilize that month to yeah to see it as a as maybe like a catapult or something um to even exponentially um, empower us throughout that month and then maybe take that energy throughout the rest of the year and um that's what i see to make sure there's always this one time and space that we all dedicate to black history but just as an impulse to continue throughout and then ideally be inspired throughout the year to just reflect and empower and remember. But also, I'm currently very interested in in the idea of not just being stuck in the past, but first of all, being very present and also creating headspace and also emotional space to think about a future. I've learned that the body or the, the brain cannot differentiate whether we're thinking and feeling about the future or whether we're thinking about the past. So I've recently tried to exercise being in the future more so I can create this field of energy um, around me to attract what it is that I want to either aspire to be or the kind of future I would like to contribute to. So sometimes I feel that there's not enough space because we're reacting to many things instead of proactively creating things.
0: Just looking at the history of this, it started, of course, with uh, Carter G. Woodson, who was living in Virginia, a, a historian and writer, and seeing the deficit in, the, in, in Black history in schools and promoting this, what started off as what was called Black History Week then, in 1926. And then it's, it sort of took different steps along the way. And then in the 70s, there was this recognition. I I think the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass were in February. So this month just felt like it could be the one. And then in in 1976, it being recognized. And in our own context here in the UK, we had Black History Month coming here in 1987 through two people who were involved in uh, Greater London Council, Ansel Wong and uh, the Ghanaian Achaba Adaisebo, and uh, them sort of noticing, working for the ethnic minority unit there, and just seeing all these deficits, and and then bringing uh, the Black History Month across here in 1987. Interestingly, for the Zimbabweans who are here, the guest of honor at that time was Salim Gabe, our first lady. I, w- I was just uh, a little nice discovery to find that, and we're here, you know acknowledging it commemorating it my question is where do you think this should go i mean the the month you've all touched on the fact that this one month seems somehow unnatural to to concentrate in this month and then what happens in the rest of the year how would this how should this look what is your experience in schools for example is there enough happening there i know that in in the uk for example some people have commented that what is seen as history should encompass everything. Uh, So empire is also part of uh, British history and why segregate this one particular side of British history into, to categorize it. Of course, the the initiation of Black History Month is because of that deficit. So I wonder what your thoughts are, each of you, around that that idea. Part of the idea of it being October as well in the UK is that it's the start of the academic year. Uh, kids are just back from holiday, so trying to capture the imagination and attention of children at a time when they're still fresh. This is some of the thinking that went into this, so yeah.
3: From a German perspective, what I've also lately witnessed is, for example, I'm coming fresh off a three-day festival, which was about how to decolonize museums. It's a very big topic at this point in, in, in Germany. Also, we were talking about how the educational system needs to be decolonized as well. And what I can tell is that the dynamic personally, from my perspective, it's, it's not dynamic enough. And I'm still puzzled by the fact how, how plurality is still so far away, even though it's, it should be the norm, right? There's plurality already all around us, but yet there are so many aspects of it where we're still, no, but this is too, there's too much going on. Personally, I feel there are a few initiatives which are already doing great work. And at the same time, they are facing great obstacles um, as from an institutional perspective. There was an artist who wanted to create an installation to commemorate the human zoos, which Mm -hmm. were still open in the 60s. Berlin and yet she was not allowed to just dig up earth just to remember and to remind people that this is exactly where you had us standing dancing around in in leopard skin but that was too disruptive it was too disruptive to be reminded of something that a country a nation actually did which to me that sounds crazy
0: Yeah, yeah. So
3: I feel that, um, and even as we speak right now, to just maybe give you a little insight from the German perspective, there's this book fair, one of the most important book fairs happening right now in Frankfurt. And they are allowing far right winged publishing houses to set up their stall right next to the main stage where Black authors are um, promoting their books. And these are public uh, publishing houses, which actually voted to have them taken back to their country, even though they were born in Germany. They say, but this is a freedom of speech. Mm. <laughs> and this is their opinion, which is, of course, not the case. And then now resulting in all these Black authors refraining from these events, because one of them actually had to forcefully move her house after somebody um, disclosed her private address. These are the different stages that we are on. At this point, I'm very confused <laughs> about yes, yes, all these different yes. realities that are coexisting at the very same time in the very same country.
0: You're right. It is confusing. So there's something greater happening here in terms of, I guess, responsibility and how the, the nation states uh, accepting or not accepting or exposing the their responsibilities within this topic that we are discussing here. What
1: Shannon said is so relatable because we hear this about black people, whether you're being disruptive or whether you're being brilliant. In any context, being black means you are too much and you (laughs) must therefore be contained and permissioned to exist as a Black person in the world, whether it's to exist as a slave or to exist as a phenomenal human being who fulfills everything, who uses absolutely every gift that we've been born with. So, you know, Black people, we're always being required to be quiet and to negotiate our existence around the safety of the anxiety of whiteness. And I think this is really, really the conversation that we needed to have today, that our very being is a cause for discomfort Mm -hmm. and then we must apologize for that discomfort. (laughs) And it's really a very, very dark state of the world.
2: I'm fortunate enough that um, where I'm studying, like I haven't felt any discrimination cause of the color of my skin, but there are certain things I did learn about Canada, like Africa which also like the Canadian classmates were also shocked about. In terms of like the indigenous peoples as well, how like I did take indigenous studies, um, most of my classmates didn't know they were learning it for the first time as I was learning it as well. So it was kind of interesting that sometimes because of the discomfort that Bella and Shannon did mention some things are put aside but I feel like we need to confront the topics that make us uncomfortable for us to be able to like have closure so we understand yes there are good things that are within the great things that we black people we have done but we also need to discuss the uncomfortable topics so that we can come to terms with what happened because it did happen it doesn't define what hap- what's going on in the future but It's the reason we act the way we act these days, the way some of us are reserved, the reason why some of us, we tone it down a bit so we're not too loud or too mad or over the top to make everyone else comfortable when we should be comfortable with who we are. Personally, my experience studying in Canada has been pretty okay.
0: Why is this history hidden? How does that responsibility sit? all of you here in the panel are, are talking about having to educate others. This is fine to a certain point in conversation, but is this a task that should be resting on random individual encounters? Or why, why is there this um, difficult in this being you know part of mainstream education? And we can also, it will be interesting when we come to you, Bella, we can look at what it is like growing up in a country that you are native to and how the education system kind of attends or doesn't attend to this idea of, uh, of black history so yeah what, what do you think uh, Professor? you know is it our responsibility what more can be done in terms of the institutions are they doing enough
2: not quite because we need to know these topics that make us uncomfortable because we need to know why people act a certain way why these tension sometimes okay, our ancestors did what they did, but it's it's not our fault that our ancestors did. But if we confront it, we need to know everything, like the brutal truth about everything, the good and the bad. So like, we're clear. And I feel like, especially in schools, they need to teach the students about the dark side and the good side. Sometimes they might not, like students will go out and not understand what's going on, why people act a certain way they have to do, why Black people, we have to feel the pressure to tone it down when... When we can be comfortable with who we are because most of the Canadians in my class, they got the opportunity to understand, to learn about Africa, about Indigenous, about the Indigenous people. What about the people that don't get the opportunity to learn about that? They just get a dab on the topic so that they feel good about themselves. Like, Okay, we spoke about something about Indigenous people, that they didn't go deep into the like, situation that caused by their tensions between them and and the indigenous peoples or the black peoples within the country. So I feel like we need to like really go deep, deep into it.
0: I'm going to quote an unlikely source, Jacob Zuma, who uh, many people dismiss as a bit of a buffoon. But there is a quote from him that when you read history, you cannot pull out the pages that you don't like. The history comes as, as a full complement of those pages.
3: Yeah, and I would like to continue with a tiny quote from Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie that she um, shared when she gave her opening speech to the Humboldt Forum in Berlin, which is another gigantic museum full of, you may guess, yeah. but she handed it to them, where she said that the story is only true when it's told completely. But if you leave out details, then it's basically a lie. Mm. My thoughts on that are that I feel it is everybody's responsibility to share. And at the same time, I'm realizing how I'm feeling more and more reluctant to do that work because I do not get paid for the emotional labor. No one is ever paying me for what it means for me to be the object of the conversation over and over again and to expose myself to potential violence
0: Mm. over and over
3: again. I do not enjoy um, teaching that as I used to. So therefore, in the first place, I feel it's those responsibility who installed the system the way it is right now. Generally, I feel that there should be An updated culture of communication, just the way we talk and we speak with each other, that it should be okay to argue and it should be okay to come from extremely different angles and yet be able to sit at one table and to just really discuss and hear each other out instead of canceling or just saying, okay, just because this person is green, I think everything they say is going to be rubbish. And for me, I wrote down a few things where I feel this this is what makes sense to me in order to break these patterns. First, they need to be recognized, then deconstructed, then unlearned. But then they have to be replaced by new patterns and then become a new sense of normal. Mm -hmm. And why it's become so complex these days is even where I live right now, I've inherited so many privileges and I am benefiting of the disparities and of the power imbalances as well. And it's not that easy to get out of it, even though I am a black woman. So it's not as clear cut as it was before. So that's, that makes it way more complicated to now deconstruct the things. And I think there's a huge layer of shame because the, the crimes that have been committed to lead us to where we are now... They are unspeakable. So this is why there are, in some areas, no reparations on the table, because that would mean I would, in the first place, have to admit that mm. this was a genocide. This is what we did. We de- we dehumanized you. This would need to happen first. And this is what many nations and countries are absolutely refusing to do. The funny, in air quotes, uh, thing about it is that many of us also do not know about various parts of the history. I'm still learning. And every time I continue, it's just like my head is just bursting. If we all knew, then there might be, I don't know, chaos in the world. (laughs) (laughs) It's also just difficult to, to accept Before we started the recording, you you said something about performing an unwritten script and that really resonated with me. I feel a lot of us move with this unwritten script Mm. and if they now are to find out that actually there's more to it, that also means that we'd have to say goodbye to the identities we've created so far. Yes. And that loss of identity is not for the
0: faint hearted the very thing you're saying about the identities you know the idea of having afro americans asian americans latin americans sort of centuries after their ancestors arrived there and it's still those those categories still cling on and then those who are european descent don't have those prefixes before the the americanism so that's a Thanks so much for that, uh, Manuel Zunic. PJ uh, Samuels has written that it's a history that convicts and as wealth extraction continues and economies and governments are destabilized, it is not in the interest of oppressors to disseminate this knowledge.
1: It's inescapable. Yeah, reparations are inescapable. And it's just actually a matter of time. And I don't say that flippantly. I actually say it because with each generation, we're getting closer to having those reparations really be received. But they will never be enough. There are no reparations that are sufficient for the crimes and the injustices we faced. Lit Fest, I think it was in March, I spoke about the woman who became known as the Venus Hottentot, Sarah Batman from South Africa. Who was literally forced into sexual slavery in Europe by her captors, who forged a contract with her and then displayed her at Piccadilly Circus and later on in Paris? We must remember, and we must always invoke what Ghanaian writer Ama Atta Adu teaches us, is that everything Everything that those people in the world who are not Black are is us. Everything. So the very existence of whiteness comes from us. It doesn't come from whiteness. It comes from systematic robbery that's happened over centuries. So whiteness cannot exist without what we have contributed whereas blackness mm. can exist without whiteness that's where we start to have a different conversation if we recognize that so so what is it that is the problem it's that as black people we are forced to be the ones who hold the beacon of integrity right mm. around this conversation and we are required to be ethical we are required to be decent and fair with things that are blatantly obscene and things that are tremendously violent. We are required to engage from a principal position, and that is where we are entrapped by the fact that we always have to be the better people.
0: I'll bring in a comment from Pauline Brown, uh, who says that apologies might open the door to reparations. In the UK, they paid 20 million in compensation to British enslavers, which is 17 billion equivalent in today's money, but gave the enslaved nothing. So yeah, I found out from another historian here in Glasgow that as long as you're a taxpayer in uh, in the UK, (laughs) you are paying money for losses incurred by slave owners. And yet it, it still remains that the slaves and their descendants themselves still have nothing to show. I think one of the remnants, because we're talking about some of the little leftovers, right? So the idea of international travel, for example, you know when we're in our home countries, we we are told a lie by the state because we are told that a passport is a document to take you around the world, right? And then you realize that certain passports Merely by political decisions, cannot allow you to have passage into other places. So for me as a researcher, traveling to do our work in the in the field, just that inconvenience of being taken out from the queue or having to stand and wait, or even the having to get a special permission before you leave, the, the time it requires for you to go to appointments to Make the application for for these visas. You know, these are some of the remnants of what we're discussing here. So let's take each of us a personal journey a little bit here and just share with our friends here in the audience just what this feels like in a day to day basis. Once to actually
2: understand something about our culture like for example our hair how we do our hair sometimes when they're asking me it feels like they're walking on eggshells they're scared to offend me when they they just want to learn like they're scared to ask any questions about because they think that i'm gonna attack them or accuse them of racism Mm -hmm. for asking those questions also having people argue with me about what i know about my culture because they read it somewhere
0: like the, the last thing you said about people saying, you know, I read about it also, it's like, you know, the problem we have in Zimbabwe, we say, when, uh, you know, when people have have seen a snake and maybe they've killed the snake, you can just look at the snake, it's there, you don't have to bring a stick and say, the snake was this long, <laughs> you just the real thing is there. you know Most people recognize this, the emotional work of dealing with all that um, is, is huge.
1: I think I need a year. (laughs) Because the microaggressions are a lot. (laughs) You know, I really think I need a year. Let me put it this way. Living in Zimbabwe right now is in many ways disturbing. And not for the narratives that you've heard. It's disturbing because we had a land reform process But what's happening is our government in trying to get multilateral approval has agreed to pay back for land that was taken illicitly. And this has ensnared generations of us into odious debt for the quantum future. So every day you walk with the schizophrenia, um, that's the best way I can describe it, to say, Mm -hmm. but we talk left, and then this right-wingism, as Shannon said, happens right on your own doorstep. Mm -hmm. Where do I find survival? I find survival in writing and in poetry. So I'll share a, a second offering. I have collected the tears of a woman whose baby died. From nowhere, no hot brow or fever, no upset stomach or dehydration, no injury or accident, the baby just died. I have gathered in my purse the wet tears of a woman divorcing her husband, a woman deciding what to do about the children and their rights to a father, even a bad one. I have poured then in a bottle, the tears of a woman wondering to fight or not for her house. She built it brick by brick or walk away free in dignity yet poor. I have packed in my basket the tears of an exhausted woman stepping out of a cold clinic alone after an abortion. I have held to my chest a daughter, her tears burnt me, so hot, at a mother's funeral. I have chosen the wooden coffin when she couldn't, signed the death certificate, lowered by sorrow, at what should have been done but couldn't, because, because. I have wiped away bloody tears of the remnants of a heart broken by betrayal. As a lover left, I have collected them all. Mine, the tears of a Black woman's life. It ends there. So so for me really although it's written about intimate relationships and our private lives the allegory is really about our relationship with complex states and identity and nationhood and by extension how Africa is referred to as her right and mm. much of what i am lamenting in this poem is the fact that as Black people, we are consistently and persistently robbed. It's daylight robbery, really. And that in trying to stop this robbery, we come up against even more brutality. So the systems of neoliberalism and of colonial capitalism and its extractive nature continue to suckle on our race. And that's what I wanted to share about the complexity of existing as Black in the
3: present moment. I would describe the day-to-day experience as a very complex one. I'm thinking about my African-American friend right now, where it feels that we're having an intercultural friendship, (laughs) even though we're both Black because of the very different um, upbringing and conditioning even. And I'm learning to to curate my own bubble, really, to to extend and expand the safer spaces that I can move in, where I am allowed to be more and more authentic. For me, being Black feels like a full-time job, really, that uh, no one is giving me credit for, that I cannot have a currency that i can pay my landlord with feels very unfair i came to a point where i realized how much anger there was actually within me within my body and i was pretty shocked about the amount because i just thought oh i'm really strong or i'm very muscular i'm really this but just learning about my body and understanding that this is trauma stored in my body Mm -hmm. and just by learning about my body more than understanding the amount and how much work it actually takes to deal with it, to work through it, to heal myself Mm -hmm. in order to become a human being that can maybe break generational, I just like to call them issues, Mm -hmm. and um, maybe create intergenerational resilience instead. So therefore, for me, martial arts has become my therapy where i can balance myself and where i can um learn how to how to deal with punches and jabs and kicks and all kinds of aggression that i have to deal with in real life anyway but therefore i'm more prepared and i'm i've gained a reflex um, and muscle memory on how to deal with it and how to deal with it with a dynamic mindset and i personally have embraced solitude more than I used to in order to digest all the happenings around me and to have enough space for myself to take care of myself because there are way more sensations um, happening for me. Yeah, this this sense of being alert all of the time, it takes also, it's, it's like this shield, this constant shield that has to be upheld if I move throughout the areas that I move in and just realizing, okay, I need to take time to myself to just recharge this shield because I need it in order to walk the earth. And also choosing, choosing the battles consciously because sometimes we win because we didn't fight. And, you know, minding the cost of winning or the cost of um, convincing, the cost of learning on the backs of who, Also, a thing that I just brought up the other day after a conversation is minding the minority saviorism, that I feel that as um, the minority in white spaces, I want to be mindful of also not falling into that feeling as if we always need to save the others at the cost of our own mental health, maybe even. Mm we don't even get to live to our full potential. Yes. And this is something I find very true for myself. It resonates very strongly with me Mm. that um, being allowed to to live um, or to experience and to just explore my full potential, that sounds like a privilege I'm still working to maybe attain at some point and at the same time understanding, that's quite a challenge wow it seems
0: very unfair yeah and especially at the beginning when you were admitting to certain privileges you see having in your life and yet there is still this to also grapple with what might look like the future we want to see i feel every cause has allies in it if we just stay with you shannon something around allies before i open up to our Friends in the in the audience to join in the conversation. Just yes, if you could just comment a little bit on that. Sunny.
3: The other week, I was um, facilitating a workshop on how to moderate from a race-sensitive point of view for Amnesty International, and I suggested to them to keep in mind the person with the fewest privileges and speaking up for people who have fewer privileges and that with an intersectional approach, not just people from um, maybe marginalized groups that we are familiar with, but just thinking about who am I not, who am I forgetting? Whose reality have I not even considered at all? How do I maybe need to burst my own bubble, my own comfort zone in order to, to understand who am I not considering? Because we we tend to do that because of the complexity of this world has just become so enormous that I think this is also what our nervous systems need, right? Things that we recognize, things that we know. Mm. And that can go as far as already, I don't know, trying to think about buzzwords as colorism. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes we're also not getting the support from people who are Closer to whiteness than I am, for example. Or from men, from me speaking from a woman's perspective. Mm. And also just realizing what is at stake for who. Who can afford to speak up on what. Yes. And just making that a general attitude and not just a trend or... um, a mood that I feel like now. I feel like speaking up because it's trendy now. But just making it a general attitude, and, and somehow something I'm lack. Well, not I'm lacking, but I'm I'm hoping to see more. It's just this sense of of a backbone, of a compass, of values, and to just stand by it no matter what, even if it gets uncomfortable.
0: Real real stuff, Shannon. I you're reminding me of uh, Maya Angelou when she spoke about courage being the greatest virtue. Mm. Because according to her, without courage, we cannot practice all the other virtues. You need courage to, to love and do all the other things that we consider virtuous. So yes, uh, this backbone you speak of.
2: In terms of allyship, like you had mentioned before, courage, We we need to be comfortable to share what we know to be able to share how we feel about certain things, to help other people understand how we feel about other topics. So Mm. they're willing to to connect with us. Because when we share, that's when we manage to get allies, through friends, sometimes through our educators, our professors, sometimes even through strangers, just by sharing how we feel.
1: Shannon and Fadzi have said it all. I... I fully agree with what my sisters have said.
0: I'm just going to go to PJ, who's written in the comments, talking about the notion of allyship suggests a hierarchy and permission granting that I find uncomfortable, whilst accepting that the existing power structures make such relationships necessary. Wow, that's a serious one, uh, PJ, because we have to work towards a day when these structures can be moved, can be eased, can be dissolved, dismantled, and I guess this is part of the journey.
4: To all the panelists, individual, and it's a sort of extension of the notion of allyship. Have you entered, ever entered an arena and sort of expecting difficulty, but didn't experience difficulties and realized it was because of allyship? And how do you process that? Like you you did, you you were trying to well, something apply for something, get something approved, whatever. And you 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 applied because you know you're entitled or qualified or whatever is the situation that would come before you applying. But with the understanding of how we treated in the world, kind of thought, mm, this is gonna be really difficult. And then it wasn't. And then later on you realize it was because you had an ally caping for you, or there was an opportunity created specifically for the demographic within which you fall or something like that. And then you had to process that mentally. If that ever happened, I'd like to hear a little bit about that.
3: Actually, that just happened to me the past two weeks. (laughs) I had a situation where I was invited to moderate in a white led space. And I came prepared with my emotional shield, ready to withstand um, whatever may come ahead. And I realized very quickly that I didn't need that shield because allyship was exercised to the T. I was welcomed, I felt seen and, and really just, I felt safe. And then the week after I was moderating in a black space um, organized by Black people, and I was, I didn't come with my shield, <laughs> and yet I fell. And what that did for me was what Bella touched upon earlier, and what resonated very strongly with me was that we need to be tender with each other, even if we're not proud. There was a miscommunication, something, expectations had, had not been communicated properly. And therefore um, there was a big discrepancy, which can happen and which is normal. And at the same time, I do feel that sometimes amongst minorities, we even tend to beat ourselves up even more and even each other more, Um, which I think is really a shame because I find that extremely hurtful because I always hope to get more understanding from from my peers, Mm. from my fellow black people because I would hope that they might consider the exponential challenges, even if they have never walked in my shoes, but just to to mind and maybe ask that extra question, are you okay? Is there anything that I can support you with? This was a bit of a shock. And um, so for me, that happened just the other way around. I entered the space hoping to, to be met with understanding but then we were able to solve that in a, in a feedback conversation afterwards. And this was also learning for me to then from the herd to not retrieve, but really open up the space for feedback and just also openly say, actually, I felt this way. I felt left alone. And I was really hoping to be met with more understanding or more care just in general. And I displayed my humanness and I did make myself vulnerable outside of a a professional realm but i just felt that at the end of the day we are humans and we need to talk to each other as such so again i guess being courageous to allow other people to see one's own vulnerability and maybe remind them of of what can be done better in in the future
0: gamela is saying um that happened to me in my PhD, Viva. I went into a space thinking I was walking into an examination room and found people who engaged me in the most enriching, academically friendly and reassuring conversation I have ever had till today. And then, Yakel, you did, I hope I'm saying your name fairly close to what you say yourself. I feel like allyship is failed battle sometimes. Sometimes we are in need of accomplices, not allies. Ah, <laughs> I like that mischief. (laughs) So we need accomplices, not allies. That has been my personal experience with allyship. My question is, when are we going to the point where allyship are needed? Is there hope for that in the future? Is allyship going to take us far into the future or where does that sit? This is a poem
5: that I wrote the night that Donald Trump was elected president of the United States and I needed words that I could use in a public lecture in Adelaide in Australia. So here we go. My name is Alison and I am a recovering racist. I was born with this addiction because my ancestors were white and the country I am from grew fat in every imperial fight. Money, privilege and power come down the barrel of a gun that wasn't just in history, it's still how this is done. The work which calls me loudly towards your skins and eyes and tears is the work which is intention to assuage those birthright fears. So do not idolize my actions, do not praise my words as bold, do not look at the donations or the papers that I hold. The thoughts I have of charity are just part of this addiction inherited from a line that is a long and bleached out fiction. I do not have to worry when my skin is in a room or on a train or in a car or in the immigration tomb. I will be given space and money and more time because I'm white, because my ancestors were slave owners or slave drivers and right while you, my friends, my kindred, will be skinned another way, flayed into diminishments through ever greater punishments and all these cruel admonishments. The only proper meaning for a white man's burden is that for all my days commitment will be to a healing labor. On my deathbed, in my dying, I will be a racist too. But it's shouldering the burden that will lead to something new, not denial of what sticks to every tone or shade or pore, but the making of relationships that brim with something more, something giving and forgiving of the shame upon my skin, something real and raw and honest that can live with history's sin. At times, these conversations. May make our skins dissolve and around us through the laughter a new world may revolve when the tears are all that bind us and the skin gives way to bone and through the pain we'll love again and call one earth our home.
0: I'm going to return to our panelists and just ask you to just give us some words to take away with us, just some final thoughts as we prepared to round this up. And I'm going to start with you, Bella.
1: We must remember that we are in the words of the Aramaic version of the Lord's Prayer, the shimmering light of all things. That's what I'd like to say about our Blackness.
3: I do like to invite you all to also maybe practice the view from a meta point of life and at the same time to keep the maybe systemic approach in mind um, where the theory says that if one component within a system changes, it affects the rest of the system and vice versa which means from a resource-oriented perspective that every little thing counts and every little thing has an impact, a positive impact. And therefore, yeah, I would just like to invite you to continue doing the small, great and loving, caring things because they matter. Mm. And last, I would just like to also invite you to, to go where you're not just... Tolerate it, but to go away, you're celebrated.
0: Everyone who has come here to spend the time with us this evening, I know you have put off many things. You have done what you have to do to be here and present with us. And through your comments, through your presence, your silence, your pauses, your thoughtfulness with us, we really appreciate. And in a world where we are finding a lot of space being shut down for dialogue, this is a real celebration. In Zimbabwe, we say Kuanda mm. things are better done together. So I, I really look forward to us getting together again to spend this quality time. So thank you everybody. I'm going to exit the way I know best with the music of our ancestors. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and Arts, a podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very
3: much.